Augusta Ada Byron was Sunday's child, born exactly 200 years ago today into a chaotic household on the edge of violence. Ada's mother, Annabella Milbank, came to London at the age of 19 for the season. She was pretty, kind, intellectually gifted, particularly in mathematics. She was a future heiress who was unimpressed by the uh, superficial finery of her class. Why, she had a battalion of suitors and their mothers in Regency London that year, 1812. Enter with dramatic limp, handsome, romantic, mad, bad Byron, 24 years old, who had just published uh, Child Harold's Pilgrimage and woke up one morning, as he said, to find himself famous. Regency women who previously ignored Byron, a minor aristocrat, were suddenly fawning all over him. Watching this at a fashionable waltz, Lady Byron uh, looked at these women and wrote a poem called Byromania. She asked if human nature were to be cast anew because of this man, quote, then grant me Jove to wear some other shape and be anything except an ape. Byron proposed to her that year through his great friend, Annabella's aunt, Lady Melbourne. Uh, they'd only met once or twice. I don't even know if Lord Byron meant the proposal. Uh, Lady Melbourne uh, uh, couldn't resist proposing for him in the most flowery terms. Annabella refused. It took Annabella two more years to admit her love for Byron and for the uh, two to become engaged. But in the meantime, Byron had had an incestuous affair with his married half-sister, the Honorable Augusta Lee, and they had had a daughter recently named Medora Lee. His sister Augusta and um, Annabella's aunt, Lady By uh, Melbourne, urged Byron to marry because rumors were spreading through London about this incest. Uh, they didn't particularly want him to marry Lady Byron, uh, Annabella Milbank, but uh, uh, other women had refused that year and she uh, didn't. She, she was in love and she uh, accepted. Uh, they met maybe three or four times. I think they once touched hands. Uh, from the minute Annabella stepped into the wedding carriage on that cold uh, January morning in 1815, Byron's cruelty commenced. Lord Byron told his wife, you thought I loved you, I'll show you. And he certainly did. With an air of mystery, he told her that she had married him, uh, had she married him when his, his, her aunt had first asked for him, first proposed, things would have been different. Without telling him why, telling her why, he seemed to cast the blame for his incest on his young wife. His mental cruelty was punctuated, as it often is, by teasing regrets, loving moments, plenty of sex, and then relapse into cruelty during the one year that they lived together. 
His behavior brought Sister Augusta back into the household by Lady Byron's request in the seventh month of her pregnancy, for Annabella believed with Byron's sister present he would not act out as, as, as outrageously as he said he would. For example, he said he would bring a woman into the house and copulate as she gave birth. Still, even with Augusta present, uh, while Lady Byron was in labor, La uh, Lord Byron made as much noise as possible, throwing bottles and furniture around. He went in and told his wife that her mother, serious, very seriously ill at the time, had died, which was not true. He asked if the child were dead, and later on seeing his daughter called Ada his perfect instrument of torture. After two weeks, he refused to see Ader at all, and soon after that, wrote to Lady Byron telling her to take Ader and leave the house as soon as possible as he was closing the establishment and going abroad. Actually, after she left, he stayed there with his sister, uh, Augusta, at, at 13 Piccadilly Terrace. Apparently, Lord Byron thought that loving him as she did, and she really did, Lady Byron would simply, as Annabella's former governess said, live with her parents, pining for him, quietly raise their daughter Ader, and he would go his own way. I'm sure he's not the only man who's ever had this fantasy. It was only after 24-year-old Annabella swiftly requested a legal separation of bed and board that Byron attempted to win her back. For the Re Regency elite were again whispering, and now they were saying that incest might have been the cause for this uh, breakup, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Mental cruelty and Lady Byron's fear for her daughter, safety, uh, under the domination of erratic Byron were the main reasons she wished to be legally free of her husband's control. As Byron resisted, society added the rumor of sodomy to a growing list that painted Byron madder and badder than he wished. To put an end uh, to Annabella's seeking a legal separation, Byron employed his glorious words. In a rush of seemingly heartfelt letters, uh, as well as in the first poem he ever directed to his wife, Fare thee well, fare thee well, if forever, if forever, still fare thee well. Lady Byron well knew that fare, we, the, that fare thee well and his sudden rush of beautiful love letters were insincere. Byron used words, she said, the way his hero Napoleon used his troops for conquest. Also, her lawyers had educated her. If she responded to Byron's sudden rush of love letters or to his poem, it would be what in English law in those days called condemnation, which meant the wife had forgiven the husband all previous acts and the husband could uh, demand her return. After much negotiation, some bitter back and forth, and sheer dumb luck, she won her decree. Byron left England as soon as the separation agreement was signed in the spring of 1816, as by then fashionable society had turned its back on him, particularly when he walked into former friend Lady Jersey soiree arm in arm with his sister. 
Yet once aboard ship sailing from England, Byron used his glorious words to restore his honor, blessed his wife, and went over the daughter he refused to see. He presented himself as a bereft father torn from his child, beginning the third canto of Child Harold's pilgrimage, is thy face like thy mother's, my fair child, Ada, sole daughter of my house and heart. He told the world of his tenderness as a father, to hold thee lightly on a gentle knee and print on thy soft cheek a parent's kiss. This, it should seem, was not reserved for me, yet this was in my nature. Through his brilliant poetry, the absent and very seductive father Ada would never meet reeled his daughter in. Byron became the ghost of a father even while he lived. His elements were hers. He claimed her as he sighed over what might have been. While in his poetry, the absent Byron became the perfect father, Lady Byron, especially in Ada's early years, was an imperfect single mother of exceptional intellect and progressive ideals who had the sole responsibility of raising a brilliant, fiercely imaginative and difficult daughter. And for her to be, you know, uh, Regency uh, was, was a very lax time uh, morally, but um, husbands and wives more or less stayed together for someone of her class to, to have had her husband leave and for her to be left raising a daughter alone was, was extremely unusual. On Ada's first birthday, Lady Byron had written of her ambiguous feelings. She wrote this, and she wrote poetry all her life. Thine is the smile, and thine the bloom, where hope might fancy ripen charms, but my hopes are dyed in memory's gloom. Thou art not in a father's arms. Thou art not in a father's arms. While the absent, seductive, perfect father told the world how he regretted his inability to watch the dawn of little joys, to sit and see almost thy very growth, to view thee catch knowledge of objects, wonders yet to thee. What wondrous words. The actual catching, as well as any bungling, was left to mom. One could say that from birth, Ada was pulled between loving the mother she had and the father she imagined. In the first years of her motherhood, educational, educational innovations for the working class were Lady Byron's salvation. She wrote that the poor saved her from herself. When little Ada was not yet three years old, Lady Byron returned from a short summer trip to Scotland and found in, at Seaham in the north where she was born, not born actually, but raised, the first infant school in England for the young children of the working poor. The school was based on socialist Robert Owen's uh, infant school in Scotland and on the educational values of Swiss Jean-Jacques Rousseau and those who followed him, such as Pestalozzi. 
Young children were to learn not through dry book learning imposed by severe masters, but through absorbing the lessons that nature teaches. They were to sing, to dance, to come to love of learning through their own curiosity, inspired by teachers chosen through their God-given patience and ability to encourage the young toward their own directions and discoveries. The operative word in this progressive education was cheerfulness. In the 1830s, when daughter Ada was married and a mother herself, Lady Byron had the time to once more visit the Progressive Hoffel School in, in Switzerland, where she sent her young Noel cousins to be educated. And she formed a relationship with its founder, Emanuel de Fellenberg. And, and he was, his ideas all came from uh, Rousseau and Pestalozzi. Returning from Switzerland in her mid-40s, she founded the first cooperative school in England, um, uh, in England, Ealing Grove School, Grove School for the education of the older children of the working poor, based on the Swiss plan of, quote, her quote, making labor, and more especially agricultural labor, a principal means of education. Part of the young student's day was spent in the pleasant schoolhouse she had completely renovated, learning through mutual dialogue and respect, guided by a humane master, and part of the day was spent out of doors, each youth tending his own garden, his own allotment, the healthy produce of which he could either give to his family or sell back to the school. In London, at that first uh, cooperative school, today it's the Ealing School of Art, there's a blue plaque uh, commemorating Lady Byron. Lady Byron, 1792 to 1860, founded the renowned cooperative school within these environments, 1834 to 1850. That blue plaque stands a rare public acknowledgement of Lady Byron's important contribution to progressive education in England. Her educational ideals were a conscious rebellion against the fagging system and brutality of the upper class public schools of her country, such as Harrow, where Lord Byron had his first introduction to what was then labeled sodomy. In Lady Byron's school, cooperation, not competition, was emphasized children of all or no religion were accepted and none were forced to attend the morning scriptural readings or to go to church on Sunday. A small fee was to be paid and on time. It was a token amount but indicated the school was not a charity but a partnership. The Bible was not used for classroom instruction. Lady Byron once wrote to a friend, in regards to religious opinions, I am a communist. My neighbor's opinion is as good as mine. If he be right under whatever name, it's so much gain, gain for me. I call this Christian, you do not. Such was the clear reasoning of that liberal, far-sighted benefactor to English education, who history is all but ignored. As clear and far-sighted as Lady Byron was when it came to the educational advance for the working class in England, her daughter Ada's education was that of many middle 
upper middle class or aristocratic girls who had intellectual potential. They were educated by tutors at home, just as Lady Byron had been. Lady Byron recognized Ada's intelligence early on. By the time Ada was two and a half, she was absorbing information with alacrity. One of the myths about Lady Byron was that she consciously avoided poetry in Ada's early education, as if English uh, literature was part of any curriculum at that time. In one of the few letters Lord Byron not only wrote, but actually sent to his wife, through his sister, of course, he delighted in Ada's love of science, and he wrote that he, too, did not like poetry as a child. Ada's weekdays were filled by her lessons, dipped into about a quarter of an hour at a time, and broken up by, by rest or reclining on a board intended to ease her restlessness. There was music, French, arithmetic, exercise, drawing, geography, outside play. She was given tickets when she was good and had some taken ba back when she wasn't. These tickets were part of Robert Owen's system of rewards and punishments that replaced verbal and physical punishments. There is little doubt Ada strove to pre, uh, please her mother, to win her approval, a motivation Lady Byron actually encouraged. At five, Ada wrote, Quote, the lessons have not been done as well as they might have been done, and I'm sorry for that because I want very much to get another 12 tickets. I want to please Mama very much that she and I may be happy together. At about, uh, the age, at about that age, Ada asked her mother if her grandfather, Sir Ralph, was also her father. Ada remembered her mother's anger in retorting that her grandfather was not her father. Lady Byron was by nature temperate, but her daughter had hit her vulnerability. Ada was not in her father's arms, and Lady Byron, for all her intelligence, was raising a child who had no idea of who or what her father was. Byron died of fever in Greece when Ada was eight. Lady Byron was overwhelmed when the news was brought to her. Ada cried as well. Lady Byron assumed her daughter was crying for her mother's grief as her child had never known her father. Far from it. While Lady Byron went to visit the new seventh Lord Byron, Ada's governess took her to the ship that brought Byron's body back to Byron. Ada wrote to her mother she saw, quote, Papa's ship and liked it very much. Viewing the ship made her realize, quote, what a great misfortune it is for me not to have brothers and sisters. Uh, when her young cousin George dies, she wrote to her mother, his death was going to be a very severe uh, blow of grief. Ada did not need logical connections to experience bereavement over her father's death or over her own existential situation. Years later, when Lady Byron introduced Medora Lee to Ada as her half-sister, Ada immediately held out her hand to her less fortunate sibling. As a child, Ada reached out for her mother's hand through scientific innovations. When she was 12, uh, while her mother spent the winter season in Devon, hoping for a cure to her bronchitis, Ada searched for a way of bringing her letters to her mother and her mother's letters to her more quickly. Uh, to this end, she became absorbed in building a flying machine powered by steam. 
Steam was the microchip of the 19th century. In Don Juan, Lord Byron had written ironically, steam engines will convey him to the moon. But Ada went beyond metaphor and after months of single-minded absorption, realized she would base her engine not on a bird's body, uh, but uh, on that of a horse. And you heard something about that yesterday. Uh, she also figured out the maps that she would use to get these letters to her mother quickly. She figured out her own GPS. Uh, lady, she was amazing at that age. Lady Byron supported Ada's scientific creativity, but was concerned by the intensity with which her daughter pursued her interests with single-minded preoccupation and limitless confidence. She urged the 12-year-old to go on with her other studies as well. Uh, Ada wrote to her mother, I wish that supposing I fly well by the time you come back, you would, if you are satisfied with my performance, present me with a crown of laurels, but it must only be on the condition that I fly well. Ada was not only precocious but headstrong. When her early tutor put her in a corner, she bit off the cornice. As a teenager, she was sexually adventurous and had an affair with her tutor. Ada reported that they did everything except, as Ada put it, have connection. Connection or not, they were found out, the two defied. Scientifically, she was a prodigy similar to Thomas Cena in Tom Stoppard's play, uh, Arcadia, except Ada was more overtly sexual and lived on while Thomas Cena died. After Ada's affair with her tutor, Lady Byron spent less time with progressive causes and more with royal society and dressmakers preparing a proper course for Ada. Um, uh, Ada did turn a corner. At 17, uh, she uh, was presented at court. At this point, her mother brought her to meet Charles Babbage at one of his quirky and pleasant uh, London soirees, and the rest, as we say, is history. So let's get past uh, Ada's translation of Menebrea and her notes, which brought her posthumous fame, and go on to the fact that after that publication, Ada used her computing skills ironically. That internal tug between present mother and absent father resumed. Ada gambled heavily, relying on programs she created that she believed could predict the winners of horse races. Uh, the outcome of the method was predictable. She lost a fortune. And let me say, uh, a few people have mentioned that the account books for the uh, Lovelaces were balanced, and that's true. The thing was, she was more and more entrenched with these gamblers. She owed money. She uh, secretly took the Lovelace jewels, had paste made, and and pawned them, things of that sort. Uh, nothing was really showing on the surface until her husband found out about uh, a month before. She used excuses, she borrowed from her mother, she borrowed from everyone she could. Now, since Ada's marriage to William King in 1835 and up to 1850, Lady Byron believed she had found in her son-in-law, 10 years older than Ada, a father's arm for the daughter she raised. On William King's part, he had never before known mother's love and believed his mother-in-law's love unconditional. Lady Byron could not do enough for her high-born serious crow, 
as he was called because of his thick eyebrows. Lady Byron was the hen, and Ada was their birdie. It was a barnyard love fest. Shortly uh, after the marriage, it, it was through Lady Byron's influence with the young Queen Victoria that William King became the first Earl of Lovelace and Ada became, as we know her today, the Countess of Lovelace. When Ada's debts became so huge as to no longer be covered up, a month after he learned about it, William came running to Lady Byron late one night to unburden himself. Rather than consoling him, Lady Byron cried out, didn't he know genius was always a child? How could Lovelace have allowed Ada with her naivety and her belief in her own infallibility to go to the races without him? He could not understand that for Lady Byron, her daughter was once more not in a father's arm. Again, she, the single mother, was all alone, and psychologically, to her way of thinking, after all the good she had done for her son-in-law, she was once more betrayed. She wrote, I am only loved by strangers. Daughter Ada, on her part, wouldn't speak to her mother, saying Lady Byron had insulted her husband. However, Ada stretched the truth to her advantage all the time, and it was more likely she was embarrassed that her mother now knew how she had lied to her as she asked for more and more money. No matter, Lady Byron got a list of Ada's debts through her lawyer, and she paid them all off. It is almost a given in family relationships that love between mother and daughter often has a critical edge to it, whereas love between daughter and father seems unconditional. Estranged for a year, mother and daughter reunited in the most tragic of circumstances for Ada's con constantly terrible periods, which she called her black dwarfs, perhaps were early signs of the uterine cancer that she developed. During the last half of Ada's, a year of Ada's life in 1852, mother and daughter established the intimacy and understanding that had often eluded them. One finds it all portrayed in Lady Byron's unpublished journal letters here at the Bodleian, uh, which she wrote during the months she was with her daughter, her caregiver, day and night. Ada who once invented a steam engine to fly her letters to her mother, now had a mother all to herself, and perhaps that's what she had needed all of her life. Neither found this out till the end. Lady Byron would lament, quote, to see clearly too late, she couldn't stop thinking of what might have been. Ada realized she was going to die at the age of 36, the same age as her father. In one hallucination, she believed her father was causing her death. Another time, she saw Lord Byron at her bedside and told her mother he was there. He was. Lady Byron knew her daughter did not want to be buried at Lovelace's estate at Ockham. By then, Ada had informed her husband that his friend John Cross was her lover, and Lady Byron was incensed when Lovelace did not take that news well. The hen had turned into the lioness protecting her cub. Lady Byron thought to comfort Ada by proposing she be buried, as she put it, at Newstead by her father. Ada's face lit it up with pleasure and relief, Lady Byron wrote. Ada told her it had already been decided that she'd be buried at Newstead, but she didn't tell her mother because she thought, I thought you might be angry with me. 
Lady Byron dispelled this entirely. However, quote, I was secretly wounded by Ada's reserve. My journal is not, however, to be feelings of my own away with them. I'd like to finish, please. In her new intimacy, Lady Byron was still Lady Byron, chewing away her feelings. Ada was still Ada, keeping a secret about wanting to be with her father that might displease her mother. My daughter, Byron wrote, concluding the third canto of Child Harold, when Ada was barely a child. We heard it beautifully uh, portrayed last night in music. My daughter with thy name, this much shall end. I see thee not, I hear thee not, but none can be so wrapped in thee. Uh, my voice shall with thy future visions blend and reach into thy heart when mine is cold, a token and a tone, even from thy father's mold. Ada was buried, her coffin touching that of her father's mold, all with her mother's approval. One does wonder if at the end of her short life, Ada had reconciled those opposite parental pulls in her nature. While she was dying, Ada felt regrets at not having done more while she lived. Let me, let me summarize this at the end. Lady Byron responded to her, quote, I pointed out to Ada that few thinking minds ever felt their ends accomplished, yet the survivors have inf been influenced by those lives in an unforeseen manner, leading us to believe that the ends of our existence are hidden from us." Quote. Lady Byron said that more than 160 years ago to her dying daughter. We are all here today honoring Ada Countess of Lovelace, and in one way or another, attesting to the wisdom of her mother's words. Thank you.